What's going on, everybody? This is Kyle with the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. We got a good one for you today. We just finished recording this uh, about an hour ago, and um, I'm looking forward to listening to it again for one. We've got Chris Fry and Brian Norin on today from the University of Kentucky. These fellas have done some really cool work in their careers, and they got some really cool work going on. And it's really neat to see how they have collaborated professionally and so you'll you'll hear all about that as we get into this podcast they got a very cool bfr study that's ongoing right now where they are doing bfr pre-op and then continuing on post-op and they are looking at the muscle via muscle biopsy to see is it changing and are we really kind of getting into that muscle and creating some of the adaptation that we think we probably need to get that quadriceps stronger. So I know you guys will enjoy this. I sure enjoyed being on it and, and, and talking to these, these fellas. Before we move on to that, though, just want to remind you, if you're interested in learning more about BFR, taking one of our courses, real easy to do. Just go to our website, owensrecoveryscience.com. At the very top, there's a Get Certified option. And just follow that option down to find a course near you. And if you don't want a course near you, you want to travel, people are starting to do a little bit of that now. So um, we've got them spread kind of all over the country at this point, over in the U.S. And then as soon as we can get in-person courses going internationally, we'll get in-person courses going internationally as well. So thanks for listening to our podcast, and let's get right to it. This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, hosted by physical therapist Johnny Owens. All right, welcome back to Owens Recovery Science Podcast. We're here post-deep freeze, post-apocalypse in Texas, um, and we're super, super stoked because we have two people that we admire a ton on here. Um, who are doing fantastic work. If you don't know their work, you need to. And hopefully after today, you'll you'll um, want to go out and search it out more. So first we have uh, my buddy, Brian Norin, PT, PhD. He's professor in physical therapy and orthopedic surgery at the University of Kentucky. Um, he got his uh, PhD at the, at the famous University of Delaware uh, back in 2009. He's a fellow in the ACSM. He's also received the Michael Young Investigator Award from the, um, the, the Eugene Michael Young Investigator Award from the APTA. Uh, he's got grants from the NIH, DOD, which, which I'm familiar with, with a couple of those he has, as well as NSF. He does something that sounds really terrible and ridiculous. He's a slow marathon runner. I've done one marathon and I'm a slow marathon runner and I never did it again. So you might have to explain is what that is. Is a slow like. marathon runner someone that plans to run a marathon at some point in their life, but never could have just said, I, I walked marathons. Isn't that the same thing? <laughs> Actually, I'm a, a slow ultra marathoner. It's even worse. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't uh, see the ultra. Ultra marathon's not enough. I, I want to go longer. Um, That's even worse. Yeah. Even worse. Cool. Well, thanks, Brian. This is this is the first time in several years we haven't seen each other face to face at combined sections. So it's a bummer, man. But uh, hopefully next year we'll, we'll be there in Austin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you guys just keep the lights on down there, we can come visit. Well, bring your own water, you know. And uh, <laughs> if, you need, if you need a flush toilet, you might have to go to the pool at the hotel and fill a bucket and put it in the back. Bring a go bag for CSM next year. That's what we were doing. And then also we have Chris Fry. Um, so he's a tenured associate professor in the Department of Athletic Training and Clinical Nutrition at the University of Kentucky. Um, I didn't know this, Chris. He's a Baylor bear, man. 
Um, so go, go Bears. Bears. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a Longhorn. So we'll have to we have to discuss how you guys suddenly overnight got so good at sports. Uh, I'm not <laughs> sure what was going on up there. Still have um, a great basketball season. I know. I know. We were good for like a minute. Um, he established a research lab at UTMB, which is also my alma mater and in, in his lab where he got his uh, PhD out of. We, we've had multiple folks on. We got a couple more planned to come. So they, they just turn out talent out of there. Um, and then he, he, in 2019, he just recently went back uh, to the University of Kentucky, where his lab is now at the Center for Muscle Body in the uh, College of Health and Sciences at the University of Kentucky. He's not an ultra marathoner. He's a bodybuilder. Um, bodybuilder, so. like it's a little yin to Brian. Yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. We'll, we'll 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 have a debate later about you know strength training or endurance. What should we be doing? <laughs> Let's go at it. But Chris, Brian, great to see you guys, man, via yeah, Zoom. Likewise. I'm glad we can finally get to this. We're going to jump into all your papers here um, pretty quickly. I didn't really get into the meat and potatoes of of kind of what your work has looked at, and your your lab's different. You know, you're not just like. We're, we're, we're studying biomechanics or function post ACL or, or in aging populations. You guys go like deep down into the muscle um, and you guys know your way around muscle physiology probably as well as anyone in our profession does for sure. So you wanna expand kind of about what your lab's like now, even your past labs and what your, your backgrounds were? Yeah, sure. I think we take a like a unique approach where we really try and mechanistically dig down deep into not only you know why an intervention works but how it works to kind of understand are we addressing like the underlying deficit as it relates to, to muscle physiology to know if is, is there a better approach what can we do to fine tune things but then also maintaining like clear clinical outcomes to, to you know make sure what we're doing is actually working trying to kind of bridge both worlds to put forth the most efficacious, you know, way to, to treat a patient. Yeah. I just would add, I think one of the reasons I love working with Chris, not only is he fun to work with, is like our, our labs are truly translational and complementary to each other. You know, Chris really helps us extend things in and really look at things at a molecular level, whereas we're able to pull this back as, as good translational research and look at both clinical outcomes, functional outcomes. And then we also uh, will dive in and look at um, like whole muscle function via, uh, and, you know, MRI using some cool sequences that way. So I think, you know, like the combined resources really allow us to do things that I don't think either group would individually be able to do. Um, and it's, it's hard to pull that type of collaboration off. And, and, and it's, it's a lot of fun um, getting together a lot of new ideas. There's always new ideas, right? Well, and that's like, I think where all of it comes from. It's just like, I don't think of things that you do. And so if I come up with something running it by you, you ask a question that is never going to occur to me. And so that allows me to further my yeah. own science. Yeah. I think that's really that, that give and take has been integral. Yeah. Yeah. It's been awesome. So that's, I, I think really it was the kind of been key for us and, and our success and, and really enjoyment in, in doing this work. That's where my world went light years ahead, you know, when it, at Brook Army Medical Center and Center for the Intrepid, we also have, and you probably know, Chris, the Institute of Surgical Research down there. Um, and so we had, we had this kind of neat collaboration as well, where those guys were talking about, you know, back then they mentioned satellite cells to me. And I was like, what the hell I mean, is that in space, you know? And, <laughs> and so they're, they're, they're going deep into that. And then they would come to me with an idea and I'm like, hell no, that would never happen in the clinic. You know, we, that, we can never pull that off. Um, and so I, I envy you guys. I, I miss that relationship that we had there. So good on you. We need more, you know, labs like this around the country. It's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I agree. 
Cool. Well, that being said, I want to kind of jump into the nitty gritty of first maybe going young and then going old in, in some papers you guys have put out there. Um, so let, let's let's go young first and go ACL here. So the, the JBJS 2016 ACL paper, um, where the title of it, Cellular and Morphological Alterations in the Vastus Lateralis Muscle as a Result of ACL Injury and Reconstruction. You got, can you guys expand? You know, it's, you know, it's 2016, so it means the study was probably done in 2014. So we're we're yeah, reaching right, way back. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, if y'all can remember, kind of, you don't have to go deep into details, but what you wanted to see from that study, kind of what led you down to, hey, does the muscle change after you tear your ACL? I mean, is the ACL popping a freaking signal to just tell tell your body like, let's let's just go create fibrosis, let's start dropping down gene expression. Um, so I'll let you guys move into that. Yeah, or maybe I'll just tee up real quickly, like the genesis of why, you know, and then I'll, I'll pass off to you, Chris. We, that way people don't tire of hearing just my voice for an hour. Um, but like, so, I mean, really, um, as you probably know, Johnny, I mean, like so much research has been directed at like neurologic factors and all those other things. And I, and, and I fully respect that and really believe that there are definitely neurogenic reasons, other things that are going on that cause muscle weakness. But when I, started down this path for me what i noticed was a blind big blind hole was like well the muscle has a say in the matter as well and there could be local factors that are driving muscle atrophy and prolonged weakness that actually come back and could feed into what the central nervous system is then trying to do and so there was some work that was done by like little priesty back in like the late 80s but that was like back in the day when people were still like immobilized right so like mm -hmm. totally not applicable to the modern day and so this study was the first of its kind where we went in and we took muscle biopsies and um, performed what was called diffusion tensor imaging on muscle. It's just a big fancy way of saying that we ultimately were able to figure out the physiological cross-sectional area of the vastus lateralis, which is the strongest predictor of muscle strength, as well as look at kind of more, you know, kind of traditional things uh, as well. And we were able to take um, muscle biopsies and do imaging on both limbs before surgery and then did it again at, at a follow-up time point later on. And what we found was that the physiological cross-sectional area nosedives never really recovers. And um, my recollection is satellite cells go down, muscle fiber types switch from uh, more of a type one to no, wait, two to two. It's, it's two been, Johnny, five years. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I hear you, man. What does it happen to the... So you're, you're seeing a shift in the distribution. Right. You went from a two-way to more of like a two-way, two-X hybrid that's yeah. just going to be a little less... It's going to change recruitment patterns, too. Yeah. But then the bigger thing is the two-way atrophy was, you know, striking and then pervasive and that it didn't recover. Like, you were still looking, I don't know what you saw, 18 20%, you know, loss of cross-sectional area. Yeah monster atrophy yeah. that just did not seem to resolve well it was also too chris i think like like i think one of the things that kind of got us going was some of the initial results on the satellite cells nose diving and the wheat trimmer gluten so there's a marker of just kind of like the extracellular space the yep. milieu there like what's up with that why was that kind of explained that was kind of like a something we did kind of like on the back end like as we we're starting to analyze things we we're like oh this is really interesting you know because you start seeing the muscle cross sections um, on the on the microscope and you're like this is really weird and so we start following up with other assays that was a time when Chris was post-docking and so the two of us would be in the lab early in the a.m. because we wanted to bogart all the equipment before everyone else showed up right yep 
And then just these conversations start happening. I was like, dude, look at this. And then, you know, Chris has got just such a depth of knowledge in this area. And that really, I think, kind of led to the collaboration that um, resulted in us being here today, you know? But that was it, like, even from, you know, looking at these biopsies on just saying kind of a gross level under a light microscope, you could see that it looked like there was this infiltration of you know, what you want to call it, like scar tissue, yeah. even at that gross level that I would call, you know, a reduction in the quality per se of the muscle, not necessarily a marbling with fat, but mm -hmm. this, this scar tissue here that's likely going to have functional implications. And it was just so striking to me that exactly, I think, Johnny, as you say, pop a ligament in your knee and you're seeing this just like cascade in the quad that just like blew my mind. And, and it's interesting, you know, because we've discussed this a lot um, at conferences and things like that. You know, why would this happen? Is this evolutionary type thing? Does your body want to start fibrosis? And you guys even mentioned it in the second paper we'll talk about. Is that fibrosis to try and help with the ACL potentially? And, and you know, one, one guy I talked with, he said it was just a general stiffening of the entire limb was maybe beneficial if you're a caveman running around. Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting, like, you know, cause you're, you look at it nowadays, like, why would the body do this? You know, why would, why would it yeah. just start shutting down muscle and start throwing down fibrosis? No, that's a great question. Yeah. The, the whole drop in the satellite cell pool, do you, do you feel Chris, like that is related to the, the fibrosis just maybe blunting it and, and they're just surrounded by it or there's some sort of capillarization that's going away? Uh, these are great questions, Johnny. You get at this concept of like chicken or egg. And so that's something we're trying to dissect right now is what is the true precipitating event? Like what kicks it off? Is it the expansion of this scar tissue that's, you know, challenging satellite cells to do their job or are satellite cells losing control of their ability to regulate their own environment? And we're just starting to sort of tease apart that like timeline of events. Um, but you're exactly right too. You know, we've got some very cool work kind of coming up where we're really kind of exploring perfusion, capillarization of the quad as it relates to the ACL injury and how that interplays with satellite cells and what that ultimately means to recover from this injury. With, you know, a lower density of muscle stem cells, you're, you're probably not priming the quad to, to bounce back as quickly as you want. So what can we do to try and, and solve that? Yeah, and to, to help our listeners, we talked about it quite a bit in the past, but can you give uh, a layman's kind of view of what a satellite cell is? With extremity war injuries a couple of years ago, our, our kind of chief scientist, Josh Winkie, he had a talk and in the first sentence he said, for those interested in muscle regeneration or muscle hypertrophy, satellite cells are a big deal. Or muscle health, satellite cells are a big effing deal. Um, so they're important to guys like you. Most PTs probably have never heard of them before. That's exactly what I, I would definitely, you know, second that sentiment. They, they are a big deal in the muscle. And these are what we would call the muscle resident stem cells. So you undergo a little bit of damage to that muscle or you go and have a strenuous workout, you're inflicting a bit of micro damage to that muscle. And that's how we respond and get stronger. We adapt positively to, to exercise or we recover from injuries. And that is almost entirely due to the activity of these satellite cells. They are able to sense, you know, damage in the muscle, activate themselves. They divide like crazy and then fuse into your muscle fibers to help repair that damage, to help the muscle recover 
and you know become better, if you will, in response to exercise or injury. That's where this was such a good paper. You know, it's in JBJS biopsies, well-respected labs, and you're—I mean, really, the first time that I know of showing post ACL that your satellite cell pulls depleted. You know, it. it we, we looked at it a lot with volumetric muscle loss with the soldiers from blast injury. And our guys were just so worried, just losing the chunks of muscle just took your pull down. And we're, we're saying in this young ACL folks, it's gone down significantly. So that, that was a huge finding. Um, and, and then I think just spinning this back around and, and we'll get into your protocol a little bit for your BFR trial. You know, Jacob Nielsen's work showed three weeks of, of, of daily BFR really had a rapid rise in, in satellite cell content. So I, I assume you guys know that paper and you have any thoughts yeah. on that? Oh yeah. One, one of the reasons we, we went down the route we did was looking at you know modalities that have been shown to kind of help promote satellite cell expansion and function. These were yeah. you know key observations of deficits in the muscle. So what can we do to target that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we went into VFRT back in the day uh, more uh, like we had the observation of like you just talked about reductions in satellite cells and we started looking around like okay what can you do like what's out there and that VFRT was one of the few modalities out there that's shown uh, an ability to to rescue or improve um, satellite proliferation and that paper was one of the main ones that really kind of drove us in that direction. It's weird everything's full circle like so you know Brian you and I met when we first started discussing your trial and 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 you know working together with this, I don't know if you know, Chris, when we first started in the DOD, we called Rasmussen because some of our guys at the ISR knew him and Steve Wolf was with us. I don't know if you know Steve. Um, and because of y'all's papers that came out on mTOR signaling and our guys were very interested in that. So we've got this like full circle where we didn't even know each other. And it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Steve's back down in Galveston now. And I, I, we overlapped just a bit before I left, but I, he's got you know a great group down there again in Galveston. So it's funny how things go come full circle. Yeah. I wish I would have called you. I think I might've got more information I got from Rasmussen on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well then, you know, so I think the highlights of that one are, are just this striking drop in satellite cell. But then also, if you just look at the muscle, as you mentioned, everything, pinnation angle was significantly down. Total volume was significantly down. Physiological cross-sectional area was significantly down. And just to point out after you tear it, and then I assume you guys are doing good rehab up there in Kentucky, after you rehab and basically are returned to play, it was when y'all did your next round, right? Uh, yeah, so it was a little bit earlier than return to play. It was, it was right around probably the time we would now call like return to sport drills, right? So, you know, um, you know, kind of like that four or six month range um, where people are starting to kind of get back towards being more, more active. I think, um, you know, like all things like, you know, the research comes out and the study started like years and years before and like back in like the early, Sounds so long ago, <laughs> like 2010, 2012, yeah. right? Like, dude, when we did wear masks. Yeah, the dark <laughs> ages. Yeah, um, like you didn't, you know, we were probably using return to play a little bit more loosely than yeah. I, I do now um, in our more current writings. Let's go into the second one then, um, spun off of this study where you, you looked at this increase in myostatin. 
and, and we've talked about myostatin before and, and again, um, small world because we, we were tied in. ISR is the military's burn ward. Our guys were very interested in anything that was fibrotic um, as well as our VML stuff. So, so um, we worked a lot with Johnny Heward um, and what he was looking at, uh, especially from TGF beta. And you found something different than what Johnny's seen with the TGF beta. But um, you guys want to kind of highlight what myostatin is, what you saw in that? Yeah, yeah, happy to. I mean, I think when myostatin comes to mind, people tend to think of, you know, super muscular mice or Belgian mm -hmm. blue cattle. It's best characterized as probably the strongest inhibitor of muscle growth. And so it serves as the brakes, if you will, from us becoming hypermuscular. And there are many models in nature and that have been created in a lab where if you genetically knock out myostatin, you get a hyper muscling phenotype. So little mice that look like bodybuilders, dogs, cows, just slabs and slabs of muscle on muscle here. And so it has clear defined roles in regulating muscle size, but we were also real interested because it's also an upstream driver of what we would call like pro-fibrotic pathways. So, you know, as myostatin is elevated, it can also help drive the biosynthesis of collagens, and other components that kind of make up that scar tissue that we were observing in the muscle after the ACL injury. And so we were really trying to sort of flesh out this relationship. Can we try and pinpoint maybe some upstream factor that's you know dysregulated after the ACL tear that would offer a therapeutic target to try and enhance outcomes? And that was kind of the, the underlying premise for that study that we're continuing to build on. And I think too, John, I, like you kind of alluded to it earlier, like I'm just thinking about like, how do you translate this back to like what the clinician would be thinking, like why would you care, right? And so like uh, I remember when we got done with the JBJS work, like the question becomes like why? Like what's the model that one could construct? And, and so myostatin is super interesting because myostatin actually gets upregulated um, after an ACL tear and you can actually find it expressed within the tibiofemoral joint. And in that case, that's a good thing that the body is right. thing to try to repair the, the thing, right? Although it can't. But then we were thinking like, well, this is really interesting because like, if you think about it, like modern ACL surgery didn't really start happening until when, you know, like I started tinkering with this in the seventies, eighties, nineties. It's only been in the past few decades. We haven't like evolved now to understand that you can you construct the thing. So what's the body going to do? Well, well now all of a sudden when you contract the claws, the tibia is going to enter translate, you're going to fall down and you're going to be eaten by saber tooth tiger, right? And so it would make sense. The body's going to now try to preserve itself by weakening that muscle a little bit, um, which would be where myostatin comes in because it is expressed within muscle and it has all these things which we think are negative, which might have actually at one point been a positive, but it doesn't really work in modern society because that, that, that gave us the model to try to understand why like locally, like the, the muscle could be acting on its own accord to induce atrophy afterwards. And, and it's not, maybe not all due to you know, some sort of reduction um, in, in like your, your ability to activate the muscle, whatever, you know, it certainly plays an important role, but you know, could there be other factors that explain um, some of these protracted weakness that we see in these individuals? And that upregulation of myostatin at the joint level stiffens it. And so you're getting also this stiffness of the joint at the same time. So that arthrofibrosis was a good thing when you yep. were the caveman. Yep. I, you guys even pointed out, it was a great point you know, doing surgery immediately after you tear your ACL, 
you, you got a higher arthrofibrotic potential there. And that might be just of that increase in myostatin. I, I think it was also, and by the way, Chris or Brian, if you guys learn how to get rid of that myostatin gene, let me, let me know. I want to be the first one that just gets super, super <laughs> hypertrophic without. We went, we went in on that. I'm already IPA. on that. Chris, Chris has already put himself <laughs> at the number one spot. I was like, right, I was helping with my slow ultramarathon. Not at all. Uh, yeah, it is, it's worth it, man. Yeah. Yep. The thing also that's interesting you guys um, pointed out was, was this a disuse issue? Was it tearing your ACL? Was it surgical? Um, and I thought that was a, that was a great point because Van Loon, they showed just reducing walking for a week. They saw myostatin gene expression go up threefold. So it's like, okay, there is a disuse piece to it for sure. Um, and, and Ashish Betty has shown after ACL up to week 12, we saw myostatin levels rise. So you know, you guys have also shown that same thing there, but, but you showed that you kind of knocked those out when you say these people were ambula ambulating and were exercising um, post ACL. It wasn't like they were in a disuse model. Am I right on that? Yeah. I mean, you, I think, you know, uh, as well as anybody, all the, all, all the clinicians know, like certainly after ACL reconstruction, you're not laying immobilized around, like, you know, for our career within 72 hours, we're back in the clinic and we're, we're, we're zapping over East End, we're, you're moving, you're getting going on open closed chain exercises, like, you know, some of our ACL subjects find out that they're working harder with us than they were um, playing their sport prior to, right? So right. it's not like they're not doing anything. Um, and that's one of the key differences, this clinical population versus, you know, some of these like forced disuse studies, which are great, but just different. Yeah, and that, that was the point we were just trying to make, you know, th this concept that it's not just simple disuse driving what we're seeing in the muscle, that there are other factors at play here. I think that's, been at least some, I don't want to say pushback, but like feedback where people are, oh, it's just, they're not using the muscle. They've just been sitting on a couch. No, oh, my stats up. That's not surprising. You know, how many right. decades of disuse literature have showed us that, but we were just trying to make the point that it's, that's probably not the case. You know, these people are working exceptionally yeah. hard and we're still where we are, you know? And it's not the surgical insult because you did this pre-surgery as well, you know, so you could say, well, there was a, the insult of surgery and everything that happens with that inflammatory cascade or whatever um, does that do it. But, but the first biopsy was pre-surgical. Yep. It's a very yeah. good point. That's, yeah. Very really cool. And am I right? Myostatin breeds fibro, the fibrosis and the fibrotic cells bring in myostatin, it's like a vicious cycle. As you get more of one, you get more of the other and it just keeps going. And that, that's something, you know, I guess you could call it a problem with myostatin is there are mechanisms where it can continue to sort of feed forward. You know, we get down sort of into the nitty gritty in that paper where we're actually treating these isolated cells we're pulling from biopsies with myostatin and seeing they proliferate a lot more. So it's exactly like you're saying, Johnny, it just keeps, you know, breeding upon itself and you can, go down a path where it's harder and harder to recover. And so just trying to, to design programs to impede that process. And we always understood, and it was from more of the work with Johnny Heuer that the TGF beta super family was the, was kind of maybe the driver and, you know, he's using Lasartan and all sorts of things. Now he's on the senescent cells of trying to figure out how to take down that fibrotic cascade. You didn't see TGF beta really playing a role in this. And so that was one of the things we looked like you say, yeah, I think you capture very nicely, super familiar with Johnny's work as well. And we really we didn't do an entire panel, but we took some of the, the big players in that TGF beta super family, TGF beta itself, myostatin, active in A, TGF 11. We, we kind of looked at them all and myostatin seemed kind of uniquely 
uh, amongst all the others. And that's what kind of led us to focus on it going forward. But you're exactly right that there are, you know, sort of many similar factors that other groups are also exploring here. But we're just kind of going off with the data showed us in our hands. Yeah, it was really just a data-driven approach, right? I exactly. mean, like, this is what we saw, we just have kind of kept moving down this path um, as a story kind of unveils itself to us. So what's so empowering with your work and why I really started to move more into the physiological side as I was getting, you know, a little more seasoned and learning from RS, ISR guys, when you're banging your head against the walls of clinician, like, why isn't this quad coming back? Or why did they fibrose, you know? And now you start to see this, gene expression changes and the cellular level, what's going on. A lot of times we're up against it here. When an ACL is still weak two years out, um, there's a lot the body did to fight against you. And it's not just because you didn't know how to do a leg extension um, with them. So we're trying to figure out more of these pathways. So we are too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wish you would review all of our grants, Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, ditto. Um, that will swing me into your, your protocol. So you put out the, um, in, and this is one that I was familiar with early on working with you, the physical therapy, your, um, your clinical trial designed for your ACL trial and, and getting back onto myostatin. There have been, it's not super researched in the BFR literature, but there have been papers that have shown that it, there is a blunting of it. Laurentino in Brazil probably did the best paper where we could reproduce his methods. There's, there's also some in idiopathic myositis patients where they've shown a reduction in myostatin. So again, BFR could be something that goes after that, that gene. Um, I don't want you to, to spill the guts on this, but you published the protocol. Do you want to just kind of give a heads up on what you're looking at with this ACL protocol and BFR? Yeah, sure. sure. And there's, there's lots of other great work that's been out there. I think you've uh, spoken to Luke in the past. We've done the protocol. You know, our, our stuff's different. Um, I think this is awesome. Like you got a lot of different investigators doing different stuff. We're very much more mechanistically driven. Actually, the trial is totally mechanistic. Um, that was per the NIH requirements. And so um, we're doing, uh, it's a double blind randomized clinical control trial. So it's a super duper hard thing to pull off. And on top of that, we are dumping on muscle biopsies, imaging, biomechanics, you know, and, and the full array of evaluation of your quadriceps muscle function on these subjects. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a doozy of a study to, to pull off. Um, it really has taken quite a team Effort. So that basically the, the gist of the study is we have um, two cohorts, individuals are randomized into two different groups. Uh, there is a, uh, an actual intervention arm where the individuals receive BFRT and a placebo uh, arm as well. Um, and we get um, at baseline muscle biopsy, we do uh, an MRI, uh, full biomechanics workup in our lab, as well as measure uh, muscle strength. And we do about a month's worth of prehab on these individuals. That's kind of based off the best of evidence that we had at the time. And certainly I'm a Delaware alum, so we're going to be kind of pushing the prehab if we can. Mm -hmm. And then they have surgery, and then we uh, follow them through for the next six months of rehab. And um, <clears throat> they will uh, start BFRT um, approximately two weeks after surgery. Um, you know, we could discuss and debate, you know, changes maybe now if we were to restart the trial. Uh, again, this is all based on decisions we had to make back in 015, off five of years ago, 2013. Yeah. yeah, which seems like the ages ago now. Um, and then they will stay um, in either of the two cohorts for the next uh, four months. And we will then have our next kind of follow up, we'll get a muscle biopsy, MR, 
full body mechanics and we do an additional two months where neither group is using any cop and it's just straight up just getting after it, trying to get full quad function back. And we do a last assessment at six months with these individuals, but no biopsy, no MRI at that time point, because our primary point of interest for that aspect was really um, while they're in one of those two groups. And then we kind of want to just trace them afterwards and see if you know, maybe one group bounces back even further and faster than the other. So we're about mid swim on the trial. It's been kind of a terrible year with COVID, but we are, are managing actually. You let COVID slow your trial down? I mean, what <laughs> the hell, man? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're, we're pressing on. Uh, we were able to get some recruitment last year, but um, yeah, that's kind of where we start. Happy to take any questions or, you know, if you want me to clarify anything. Um, no, uh, and, and that protocol is, is published um, in, in PT Journal. And so if people want to get a little bit of a deeper read, but, but essentially everything you found in those prior papers we talked about, you're going to reassess, it sounds like, and see, did this intervention actually touch on that? And what's yeah. cool, you know, yeah. like Luke's, you know, and we got one coming out uh, from Methodist Houston. It's similar to Luke's. It has pretty much the same results. They used to got a little bit further, um, but we don't have the mechanistic stuff. And so that's going to be like a beautiful tie-in. If yeah, these two so. big ones come out, yours comes out and actually says, and here's why, that's when we say, hey, insurance payers, <laughs> this yeah. thing that we do here, um, it might go after that. I'm glad yeah. you're, you're, you're striving on. And so one thing I would like to touch on is this big bad wolf paper, because okay. this is a, a, an issue we think of why people never really get quad strength is people are afraid of open kinetic chain ACL exercises. Beautiful title. Um, it was with you, Brian, and with Lynn Snyder-Mackler out of Delaware. So you, you brought in the big gun with you um, in case people <laughs> wanted to come after you. Um, but basically using the, the fairy tale of who's afraid of the big bad wolf to describe people who set up these straw houses of why we should be afraid to do open kinetic chain exercises without any real reason why, either from an evidence-based foundation or a science-based foundation. So you want to add anything to that, Brian? Or Yeah, no, I think, you know, that, that paper was a lot of fun to write. Leonard has been um, a longtime mentor and is one of, of just a phenomenal scientist. I just deeply admire and respect. And so that, although a very short clinical commentary, that was about a year's worth of her keep coming back to me. Like, no, Brian, you can do better. Make this a little bit more punchy. Give me better, you know? And so that, I think in the end, um, you know, we got, we got to a place where I don't think it was at the beginning. And, and really, I think Johnny, it's just um, kind of addressing some big points that maybe you hear about too, but you know, we often have people coming to us like, Hey, um, you know, we'll be giving a presentation or whatever. Like you're doing open chain exercises. Like that's totally going to cause the graph to loosen up and I'm going to blow out their knee. And, you know, and so it was just out this mounting frustration and, and concern for our own clinical community that no, no, actually you need to do open chain exercises. They are safe. And, you know, by the way, you're, um, you hold a license to practice, right? Whether it's physical therapy, athletic trainer training or whatever else, like, you know what to do, right? Like, I trust you, you know, like you can make informed decisions. You know, no one's saying go out there and dump 80 pounds on somebody two weeks out after an ACL reconstruction, but let, let, let's use good common sense, good exercise science principles and try to really dose and do this right. Um, because without quadriceps function, we know that that's one of the strongest predictors for being able to go back and return to sport, um, re-tear, osteoarthritis, function quality, like without the quads, the whole thing 
isn't really working all that well. So you can dance around this however you want, but you've got to hit the quads. And the other big frustrating point, point to me is I feel like as a, as a community, uh, we've thrown out assessment, right? Like back in the day when I was just starting to practice, we had a biodex in the clinic and, and yeah. then everyone was like, oh, I'm just going to use this to stretch people. And, and, and we were all like, oh, we don't need to do this anymore. And, and now look where we are, you know, like there was a, a paper that came out from a really good group in Australia that basically showed that like less than 50% of physical therapists really ever bother to assess um strength afterwards. And if they do, they um, are using this, like making some assumptions off of doing a hop test, or maybe they're doing manual muscle strength testing. We know that isn't going to cut it. And so I, I you know, I worry for our patients that, that, you know, we have a responsibility to do our best for them. Um, and, and if we're cutting out the quadriceps, then that, that's, a, that's a real issue. And, you know, we're not saying don't do closed chain exercises. We're just saying make sure you're throwing in the open chain exercises and that you're really isolating out the quadriceps um, if, you, if you really want to get at your, a, a hypertrophy of that muscle. And I think that comes back to all the work that we just talked about, right? Like if you really want to get after it and get at the muscle, um, you've got to isolate the muscle. And if you're doing a leg press, you're doing step ups, that's cool. We do it in our protocol. Um, but there's a real risk that someone's going to use some sort of substitution pattern there and use the glutes, use the calves. Like you don't, you can do those exercises without even really firing the quads much at all. Um, and so if you ignore it, um, it's no wonder why it doesn't come back. Nothing isolates the quad like a leg extension, you know, and it's, it's, it's terrible that you have a 16 year old female girl that has never done that. Yep. And, and if these people had a biodex and actually saw the deficit, they would never do a hop test, <laughs> but they're not assessing. And you're doing a hop test and you're just like praying like, Oh my God, you know, <laughs> when we do this crossover, I, I hope it doesn't go. So. And we have um, no stock, no ownership. There's no complicated biodex <laughs> at all. Like, I mean, I'm yeah. I do. <laughs> even though you went to Delaware. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> no, I, I don't care what I mean, you use, but please use something. I've never practiced in a clinic without one. I mean, the center for the intrepid, that's, one of the first things we we had put in when we we stood that thing up, so I mean it's essential, and 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 it's we've known this. You know, you pointed out like Bruce Bainan's work in the '90s. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was that was amazing studies, and if you just read it, you're like, well, walking is is almost you know or is worse than than what we'll see with this. Yeah, um, that, that's a great point. So like, I know we didn't we had to cut that um, clinical commentary shorter and shorter and shorter. Uh, they had all these other great little points in there, but like. For example, Lou Dufresne, they, they do amazing work down at Duke, basically showed that as you're yeah. walking, your full knee extension, the strain in the ACL is about 12.5%. When you're doing open chain exercise or even closed chain, you're looking at like between two and 4%. You know, so, I mean, unless you're throwing massive weight on these folks right after surgery, then you're not, you're not approaching what they're even doing while they're walking. Right. Um, you know, so I think kind of reconceptualizing re this in our minds, I think there's such a stigma about open chain exercise that this seems so hard to overcome uh, for many individuals. So I actually, I really appreciate you um, burning that up. Um, and I think it comes back to the, to your modality, to BFRT. I think for that thing to really be yeah. effective, you, you got to get in there and you got to get after the muscle. Well, I, I think that's where I really love BFR in, in that population, because you can start it early and, and we see that you can get similar strength and hypertrophy changes as lift and heavy. But the, the big concern that you have in, in my world was that are we just gonna cause anterior knee pain if we start throwing too much weight on these people? So, you know, you don't wanna get that pissed off knee and to, to avoid the heavy load in the early days, like week two on out, um, I think BFR is just like perfect for that, so.
Um, yeah, yeah, and you know, and also I think even with Fibar, like patients are going to experience some anterior knee pain, and I think mm -hmm. it's also like in my our sample here, uh, here our physicians are mostly using bone patellar bone grafts. So you have a straight up tendinopathy. I mean, this is the definition of it. And so like, how do you do it? If this was Achilles tendinopathy, I, I tell them it is going to hurt. We're going to eccentrically overload you to make this better. But yet for some reason with ACL, we're like, oh no, anterior knee pain. And, and I get it. Like we don't want that to inhibit muscle strength and performance improvement, but, the, but some level of discomfort and pain is to be expected um, during the, the protocol. And we don't shy away from that. We try to educate the patients up front and, and good patient education, really using a biopsychosocial approach and, and helping them not catastrophize and understand what's going on and why you're doing what you're doing, um, I think can really kind of, of disarm um, some of the fear and anxiety about experiencing some anterior knee pain while performing, whether it's in BFR or non-BFR um, quad-focused exercises. I think that goes good. back to kind of what you were saying earlier, Brian, about just, you know, you're a clinician. You know, I mean, that's, that's kind of what you have to do in the clinic is figure out, well, how do I stick some load across this tissue? I know what's required in order to get it to change, but this person can or can't right now because of this or that fear or pain, et cetera. And so now we have to be the clinician and figure out, all right, how do I get them close to what I know they need? Yep. Um, and how do I kind of continue to, you know, constrain the environment, add load, whatever I've got to do in order to, to force that tissue to undergo that stress that it really needs in order to recover. Yeah. And I love what you said, Kyle, because like my students hate me hearing it, but I tell them they're all glorified biomechanics, you know, as physical therapists, yeah. you can't avoid load. Like we're always manipulating load in some form or fashion. Right. Yep. And that's, that's what we have to do is we have to figure out how to translate this. How do I give you enough load? that I get the appropriate response about going too far and, and having, you know, this terrible painful outcome or other bad things happen. You know, like we gotta get a little, we gotta step into that zone a little bit, but not go too yeah. far. And I think that's really where your clinical experience comes in, your training, your understanding of healing and the appropriate uh, response comes into play to really know where, where that line is. The good thing about BFR with those long arc quads is all you feel is that damn tourniquet hurting. Yeah. So you don't feel your your knee or using strong e-stem. All you feel is the damn e-stem. So yeah, it's that, a hypothesic effect at the, uh, at the actual uh, insertion site of, of the graph, right? You know, where the, yeah, right. where the, um, they took the graph from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, dude, you guys are, y'all <laughs> are killing it with your ACL stuff right now. So um, well, kudos you. to you. And I'm, I'm super excited to see, um, you know, what we get from the mechanistic protocol that you guys are doing right now. I want to, I want to shift to some recent work you did, Chris, um, with an older population. So, and, and, you know, we've been talking young, but a lot of your, your work and, and the CLE Center for Aging, where the at UTMB, the, there's a lot of aging um, studies and sarcopenia studies. And so you're, you're well-versed in that. You had a paper come out this year talking about the capillarization kind of being the, the rate limiting factor for older folks to, to put on some muscle. Can you kind of highlight what that paper found? Yeah. So it was kind of a, it was a fun study. And so we had taken, I believe it was 20 older adults, so 65 plus mixed uh, men and women and put them through 12 weeks of a pretty standard, just progressive resistance training. And like any sort of training study, you see a pretty wide swath of responses. There's a lot of heterogeneity there. Some people accrued a lot more muscle mass than others. And so one of the things that's always interested me is the why, you know, why does one person respond? Why does one not? 
that's gained a lot of appreciation, I think, the last few years, this concept of a responder, non-responder, and trying to tease out, you know, what helps separate these. And sometimes it's not a simple, like, binary designation. You've got just a continual response here. And we were looking at sort of cellular predictors, if you will, of that response. And so when we really kind of dove down into the biopsies of these participants before they started exercise training, we saw that the, the capillary density in their muscles, so the number of little micro vessels that deliver oxygen, nutrients, everything to the muscle, remove metabolites, that was a very strong predictor of the responsiveness to exercise. The adults that had more capillaries at the start of training were the ones who accrued the greatest amount of muscle mass. So they had the greatest hypertrophy um, following the study. They showed, you know, this was on a cellular level, measuring the size of the individual muscle fibers. This was on a whole muscle level, looking at like a DEXA scan. We also showed that those people had the greatest response in the rate of protein synthesis, how quickly their muscles physically grow. So it seems the ability maybe to deliver nutrients or just the perfusion, the, the, the perfusion capacity of the muscle appeared a very clear driver of the older muscles ability to respond to resistance exercise. And after the 12 weeks, you did see though, the low capillarization group did increase capillarization, just they didn't see increases in muscle. Exactly, exactly. They almost caught up to where the higher people were, but not quite to that level, but they did see an improvement. And it's, you know, interesting too, that just kind of looking at these people, we had a lot of data trying to capture their habitual lifestyle. And there was a pretty strong correlation with just the average steps these people would take per day and that sort of baseline capillary density. So just kind of maintaining a more active lifestyle as you age, just simply walking more maybe yeah. puts your muscle in a better position to respond to exercise as we age. That was kind of a key take home I took from it. Yeah, you know, three to four month kind of primer just to get your capillary density up, just to then move into what the real meat and potatoes are of your training program. Exactly, but so understanding cool. that, you know, so to speak, so what can we do to optimize outcomes exercise? How can we make sure, you know, everybody's going to respond to a better degree? You know, what are the, the, the predictors we can use to kind of guide personalized exercise recommendations? So, you know, I always got to spin back to the a BFR piece here, but, you know, we've seen with hypoxia, you know, even the Nobel Prize guys stuff in 2019, this increase in HIF-1A and VEGF, it, can you get there faster maybe? And, and we have a Parkinson's trial that just finished and after four weeks, um, the BFR cohort really saw an increase in those factors and, and increased angiogenesis. Yeah, and so that that's actually very cool. And I, I'm familiar with, with HIF-1-alpha. And so we had looked at some of this in a few of the VFR studies I did in Galveston, but it wasn't until later, whether it was, you know, advancements in antibodies or other lab techniques, but we pulled some other data looking because like HIF-1-alpha is regulated sort of post-translationally, you know, it's constantly being made in the body, but it's also degraded pretty quickly when there's normal oxygen. But when the muscle has a little bit less oxygen, it provides stability to that HIF-1 alpha that allows it to then contribute to turning on like vascular growth factors, things that would prevent, promote angiogenesis. And so when we look at some of those post 
translational modification to HIP-1 alpha. You know, we saw some pretty cool data with how BFR could modulate that that might lead to the kind of benefits I think you just spoke to, John. Yeah, that's where I think this population might be the biggest winners from BFR. You know, the ACL group's gonna be fascinating, but these older individuals where maybe they do get some angiogenesis, maybe they do get a, a kind of bigger muscle protein synthesis signal. Is, is this a way that we can kind of go after them, total joints or these comorbidity type diseases? I completely agree. It's really old by now. You know, I think it was like a 2010 paper, but and, you know, it was very well tolerated when we were, you know, yeah. older adults through it. They had great responses to it. It was just an acute session, but yeah, it yeah. went over really well. That was a great paper. Yeah, your average age, because I've, I've cited that paper so many times in conferences, you know, 71 year olds doing it, going bilateral leg extensions, 20% one RM. Um, you know, you really saw this, this nice increase when they did it with BFR on versus not in muscle protein synthetic rates. Oh, for sure. No, it was, it was a big punch on sort of that like anabolic response, you know, turning on these growth pathways to build more muscle. But I think the funniest thing that still sticks with me is I'm the one in there with these participants taking them through the exercise. A lot of these guys had done some exercise in their youth. And so they were familiar with resistance training. And so we go through this BFR protocol five minutes later, they're done. They're like, that's it. That's all my exercise needs to be. I was like, well, we're done for the day. <laughs> they, they were, they were blown away by that. They happy or they feel like they were like short. short they, they were happy, uh, especially a couple of them followed up and wanted to know the results. And I was uh, like, you know, cause everything was a crossover design. So they were in both arms and they were, they were blown away. They were like, man, you know, where, where can we, you know, get this? Get this yeah. How can I take that to the gym with me? Yeah. <laughs> I've never done a study, you know, I'm, I'm not deep into it like you guys are, uh, the cellular level and, and gene expression. When you're measuring muscle protein synthetic rates, you know, we see it at this like three hour time point, six hour time point. How, can you take us through like how you do that? Yeah, happy to. It's, it's a real fun technique and it's, it's one of the reasons I went to grad school. I thought it was really interesting when I was reading about it. So we label in or we, we put into participants, we infuse into them a labeled amino acid. So amino acids are the building blocks of protein and we're interested in understanding how quickly our muscle is building protein. So we give them an amino acid that's just a little bit heavier, reacts in the body in every other way similar, but that extra weight allows us to kind of trace it through the body. And so in our muscle, as you start synthesizing proteins after exercise, you know, we can tag that amino acid and then measure its incorporation to mathematically calculate the rate at which it is being incorporated into bound protein. How quickly is the muscle taking each individual amino acid and putting it into a peptide chain? We're able to quantify that to determine how fast our muscles are building protein, i.e. what you would do over time to result in muscle growth or hypertrophy. And how are you actually measuring it? So through serial biopsies, we use gas chromatography and mass spectrometry to break apart the proteins in our muscle and then analyze basically the abundance, if you will, of that labeled amino acid. And when you take biopsies across time, you're going to increase the incorporation or the amount of that tracer amino acid. And since we know the time between biopsies, it's a pretty simple mathematical equation. You're looking at incorporation changes divided by time to actually give you a synthetic rate of proteins in the muscle. 
Perfect. Thanks. Well, I know your lab down there, Kevin Tippin always told me it was nothing but biopsies and he was sick, sick of always being stuck. He's always trying to recruit me to do, do one of the studies. I never wanted to because I'm a wuss. So. <laughs> I think I've had about a dozen biopsies in my yeah. life yeah. for the same sense. Y'all you're, you're were doing some isometric bicep hold one and he wanted me to come in and do it. I'm like, you want me to maximal isometric and you're doing a bi you know, a bicep biopsy on me? Hell no, man. <laughs> I got a test tomorrow. He was, could I ask a, a protein synthesis question? So I, I was just listening to a podcast with Kevin Tipton and he was discussing, maybe there were like two different ways of getting protein synthesis. He's talked about like an arterial venous way, but the then also I think one. like a, a, yeah. a biopsy way that you, that you guys were doing. That's yeah, great, great question, Kyle. So there are actually, I think you could look at it from three different angles. Two of those are sort of the, the AV balance, the arterial venous. So you're not actually sampling the muscle in some of these, but you're taking blood draws from the femoral artery and the femoral vein. So these are the ways that blood is both delivered to the leg and then taken away from the leg. And so by measuring the abundance, if you will, of that heavy amino acid tracer, you can see how much of it is taken up by the muscle. So what comes in the artery, the muscle will take some of that amino acid, some of it passes through and gets back into the vein to return to systemic circulation. And by looking at that difference between the artery and the vein, you can estimate how much the muscle is using to build protein. Now, other methods use a more direct biopsy approach where you're actually looking at that incorporation across time that I just described, but there are a lot of ways to use tracer kinetics to estimate rates of protein synthesis with these labeled um, amino acids. So you would still give the labeled amino acid in that way. Exactly. It's just you're looking at it in a different fashion. Got and, it. You know, like there, these are incredibly invasive studies, whether it's a biopsy yeah. or you're putting a catheter into the femoral artery yeah. or vein. There is, you know, clear risk here. These are invasive procedures that participants are well versed of that. But then the clear benefit to science is gained. But yeah, you're 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 definitely giving some degree of, you know, body tissue, and you're still receiving this label tracer to kind of get the data we, we seek to capture. On the older front, are you guys looking at anything BFR wise in the geriatric population? Or are you primarily, because I know, Chris, Brian, you guys have a, an anterior knee pain trial as well. Yeah, there's on, three but... trials going on right now in the lab. There's one on anterior knee pain. That's uh, uh, one of our uh, doctoral students, Lauren Erickson, is completing as part of her PhD. She had a grant from the American College of Sports Medicine uh, for that. So we're super stoked and proud of her. And uh, we have another trial that's just starting, that's funded by the DOD, that's looking at um, BFR along with um, a uh, type of injection in, in patients who've had a, um, who have a patellar instability or patellar dislocation. Uh, so same, same kind of idea there, can we kind of employ BFR, this time more of a low load situation to help kind of, you know, jumpstart um the recovery of the quadriceps muscle um in, in both i think we we gotta we gotta get this into some of the chris's older population study stuff man i mean i think it's so yeah we've, such a we've good talked talk about it we've talked about it it's like how many trials can we uh <laughs> <laughs> johnny yeah. we need more units yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, i know well, what yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. we uh <laughs> 
Small world as well, though, Brian. We also have the equine stuff that we're we're kind yeah, of Jerry together Johnson. on. And, He's awesome, yeah. awesome, yeah. awesome person. And um, yeah, so that'd be cool. We're gonna go down uh, to her national meeting and, and talk with her, like human to yeah, um, translational, translational. And then I think also Johnny, also the who doesn't go in, Kyle, uh, Stefania Bell, who I think you know yeah, really well. She's gonna be. Yeah, link them up. Yeah, yeah. So we'll have to get a picture, a group picture, and send to you. But I think you yeah, and I did awesome cool. together. Yeah. Yeah, we have a poster coming out with her in ORS. Um, when is it next month on some of the e early equine stuff? So they're they're doing some really cool stuff there as well. And we got yeah. the Kentucky Equine World tie-in here. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Sherry's awesome. I'm just so impressed yeah. with her. Uh, really smart. Really, really working hard. Yeah, yeah, she's yeah. great. Cool, man. Anything else, I, you guys? I got I got a Kyle? question. Can I ask? So Chris, I, going way back now in the podcast, actually, I just made like a mental note because I was figuring out when to ask this. Um, and so now I'm just throwing it in at the end randomly. <laughs> um, when you were talking satellite cells, um, repairing muscle, that kind of thing, I, you kind of made a reference to it being related to damage. And, and then, of course, with the Nielsen paper, you know, it was kind of one of the things was super high frequency, but, you know, they're saying, look, it's this muscle fiber doesn't look disrupted, but you know, they, they kind of, I feel like they, if I remember correctly, they made a comment about, it seemed as though maybe the sarcolemma was a bit more permeable. So when we talk satellite cell proliferation BFR, um, do you think that Nielsen showed something just because it was so freaking high frequency? Um, or do you think like, for example, an individual bout gets you to the point where those satellite cells proliferate? Uh, I, and then I'll just kind of let you roll on it, you know, just in relation to damage and, and that kind of he thing. He had a control group though. So it did the same volume. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a very good question. You know, just on with kind of aside from BFR, an acute bout of exercise induces a pretty sizable proliferative response in satellite cells. There have been, I don't know, a half dozen great groups, Luke Van Loon, Tim Snyder's, you know, some of our work, we, we've shown that a few times and not necessarily indicative of damage. I wasn't, I guess, trying to insinuate that it was a damage, you know, dependent response. Satellite cells are key in promoting muscle adaptation of, of many, you know, degrees and colors. And when a muscle fiber grows or is, you know, under a sort of like growth promoting stimulus, it will often fuse in a nucleus from a satellite cell to kind of maintain its healthy function, maintaining transcriptional control within the fiber itself. So it doesn't require a damaging effect or bow to, to kind of initiate that process. Um, and it's hard to say with the frequency that that paper employed, you know, I, I, I feel I remember it pretty well that I do think they showed some interesting, maybe disruptions or, or alterations in the sarcolemma, maybe not enough to, you know, what, what is subclinical damage? It's, it's a gray yeah. area here. They weren't seeing anything that was very pervasive or severe in its, you know, uh, uh, um, in, in how it occurred, but they were, you know, seeing such a response there that I, I'm, you know, I, I feel confident that BFRT is, is, is having that sort of effect that it's leading to a promotion of, of satellite cell activity that might just be promoting positive muscle adaptation, i.e., you know, growth hypertrophy. Yeah. Cool. 
appreciate that. That, that, that helps me always. Yeah, I feel smarter. I feel smarter yeah. after yeah, talking yeah, to you guys, man. It's good. Love it. Love it. We're gonna do this again. Yeah. Yeah, we'd love yeah. to do it again. And I, I really would think uh, after Chris and I, I think we have to thank both of you guys for inviting us on. I don't think we've ever talked before we got on your know, recording. I don't think we've ever done an interview or a podcast or anything. But as scientists, it's so important for us to make sure we're trying to share this information and, and share it with a wide and diverse group of individuals. And so this is great. This gets us out of our uh, labs and. Uh, I kind of shared this with a more broader population. So we hope that you know this was helpful or informative for somebody. We, we told you to put people to sleep as we geeked out on uh, muscle physiology and biomechanics for an hour. Yeah. We appreciate it, man. Anytime you guys put a paper out, our ears perk up and, and we read it. And yeah. our profession needs to be reading papers in Journal of Applied Physiology and JBJS and things like that and expand out of you know just our typical strength type stuff and function. This stuff is, is empowering to learn. So love it, fellas. All right. I want to get up there. You got to take me on the bourbon trail. I won't bring Kyle because you'll freaking No, I'm going. I'm, no. yeah. you, guys, I'm you guys are always, in, yeah. always invited. Also, we want to put a plug in. Shameless plug. If there's yeah, any please. young people who would like or old, I guess we don't care, uh, would like to get their PhDs. We're always looking for um, yeah, motivated students. Motivated students or particularly Seems a little challenging for uh, just calling out the physical therapy and athletic training community. Um, it's, I know it's hard to leave the cush job and come back and get the PhD, but um, you know, we really do need faculty where we're about to drop off the edge. And um, you know, we try to have a really supportive mentoring environment here. Um, you know, hopefully after listening to Chris and I talk, people are not afraid to reach out to us. Um, and we have a number of even if your thing is in muscle physiology, there's a lot of stuff going on in our labs that you can get involved in and work on and but we really do need um clinicians to come back and get their their phds we're going to begging um i think thinking yeah. postdocs getting through fun science and a collegial environment I think yeah. we're doing fun stuff yeah. yeah yeah man i mean there's so much to chew on here you got clinical outcomes clinical trials you got muscle physiology biomechanics muscle strength i mean if you can't find something you're you're fascinated by with us then um you know i don't know uh what to tell you but yeah, I think there's just a lot, a lot of cool stuff going on, and um, we'd love to um, love to hear from people out there. And even if you're not thinking like, "Hey, I want to do this," like this year, like just I, I encourage you to get a, get in touch with people early. Like I'm thinking like two, three years now, Brian. I want to do this. Guy. So I email you and we keep up a little dialogue, keep a conversation going uh, with things. I know for me, this all worked with Irene. Like I didn't go back like that day. I was decided, like, I think it was a good year, year and a half later that I showed up at Delaware. Um, after we corresponded and talked about things and I kind of planned my life out, what I was going to do. Um, so by all means, you know, we encourage people to reach out, shoot us an email. We're on the Twitters. Yeah. Uh, we're trying to do better. We're not like, uh, Johnny over here <laughs> tweeting all the time, but we're trying, uh, again, this is our attempt to try to share the science. So what are you at? Are you at what, what's your Twitter handle, dude? Chris Fry PhD. <laughs> Sorry. Wow. <laughs> Chris wow. Fry PhD. Good for you. F R Y. Chris Fry. There's another Chris Fry in the There's world. A ton of them. Shut up, really? That's I have no idea. There's well, only one with a PhD. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there's only there's only one Norin. Uh, so yeah. B Norin B N O E H R E N take you to me um we're pretty much the same human if you find chris you can probably look through who he follows yeah. and find me or whatever but yeah. we're trying to do better about posting stuff and uh being more present in the community i, I like twitter i think it's been a good 
environment for us mm -hmm. in yeah. terms of science. And I encourage people who are interested to use Twitter uh, for that regard. I think a lot of folks that hear this, you might you might be people hitting you up because it sounds like a great place to, to work. We'll put a link to your lab um, so they can see contact yeah. information. Yeah, absolutely. Brian, absolutely. I'll, I'll put your cell phone number on there, Brian, as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be so uh, to be more like the one phone call I get from my wife per day. So uh. we'll put uh, we'll also put links to all these papers we talked about so people can go find those yeah. as well. So yeah, yeah. In person, if someone has a hard time getting the paper or whatever, just email us directly and we can ship you the paper. Oh, thank you. Guys. Really yeah, appreciate that. Really, thanks thank you guys. guys. Thanks yes. for being persistent with us. I know it's hard to schedule and ice storm, all kinds of crazy shenanigans going on. So thank you both. We really appreciated this. Yeah, great question. Appreciate it. I appreciate that one at the end. Glad you guys <laughs> survived the crazy storm and uh, let, let's let's link up soon. Yeah, absolutely, guys. Yeah, right. make it happen. See you. Take care, fellas. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.